Welcome to Digital Insider, a podcast series about the digitalization of retail. I am Bernardo Lingruber, and together we'll meet with business leaders, thinkers, and academics to discuss how the business landscape is transforming. Our guest today is Dan Goldman, Head of Strategy at Gap. He has a long story of working in consultancy, brand management, and strategy in companies like North Face, McKinsey, and P&G for over the last 20 years. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it's, it's a huge pleasure to have you with us. And, uh, well, you, you are now working at Gap, right? And you have been quite a long, you have quite a long experience in the consumer retail sector. To get started, can you talk a bit about your background and career? Like, what brought you to where you are today professionally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, broadly speaking, uh, about 20 years of consumer retail experience, and I would say that my passion area really is the intersection of consumer psychology and growth strategy. And it's really about how do you help brands build more emotional connections with their consumers that ultimately lead to that long-term sustained growth. I've sort of done it at a bunch of different stops along the way. I actually started my career doing marketing strategy consulting, and then after business school, spent a couple of years at Procter and Gamble doing brand management, uh, working on cleaning products and shaving products. So if anybody has any questions on either of those topics, I'm your guy. And then I transitioned back to consulting, spent about a decade um, working both with retailers on their growth strategies and then with private equity investors, helping them figure out they want to buy different consumer retail companies. Um, and then when I got recruited to go to North Face, so it was a unique opportunity to go to a really iconic brand in the industry. But, and one of my favorite brands growing up, but one of these brands that have lost some of that emotional connection um, and you know still made great products. I felt like it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to a brand, help them uh, reestablish kind of their brand purpose, uh, their focus, uh, and get them back on a really strong growth trajectory. And so it's been nearly three years there um, before uh, pivoting over to Gap Inc., which is the parent company of Gap, Banana Republic, Athleta, and Old Navy. And I've been here for uh, about the last nine months or so um, in uh, leading strategy across the, uh, the kind of the corporation. Mm. So just to just to make sure, I, I just mentioned Gap, but I should I should say always Gap Inc., right? Because it's, a, it's more than, than just Gap. Either, either is fine, but yeah, no, uh, we, we are a portfolio company where we have a family of four great brands um, that uh, interact with different consumer segments and, um, you know, play different roles in consumers' lives. So it's a, it's a fun group of brands and, you know, Old Navy's the, the big giant, but, you know, we have strong brands like Athleta that are growing really strong and making really meaningful connections with their consumers as well. Mm. Amazing, amazing. So you already said about the 20 year experience you have. And, and as this podcast is about the digitalization of retail, um, I mean, what haven't changed in 20 years, right? So, <laughs> so I'm really curious to, 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 to learn what were your first experiences going online? You know, do you have the, the memory of, of, of the first time you, you started selling online, how that was, how that was like? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it has been a, the fundamental driving change, you know, across retail over the last 20 years. And, you know, with it um, has really revolutionized kind of how and where brands interact with consumers. But also, you know, really from a consumer perspective, 
an explosion of choice. It used to be in the United States, you know, you go into your local store and maybe there's two or three brands of jeans that you can choose. And now any consumer can go online and see hundreds of brands. And so what it means is every brand has to be better um, and elevate to win um, because consumers ultimately have choice and consumers have the power where it used to be the brands and the retailers have the power. Um, for me personally, um, you know, the, the first time I really uh, worked with a brand and kind of kind of the e-com business and the website was back in uh, when I was at Procter & Gamble on Mr. Clean, which is a, a big cleaning brand in the U.S. But I, one of my first assignments was to really kind of overhaul and build out a, a much more modern website for the brand that really allowed consumers to engage um, in, in, in a more um, kind of... Uh, a connected way um, and really tell the brand story, talk about the products in a way that was a lot more compelling versus just kind of an info sheet. Mm. Um, and that was probably back in like 2007. So it wasn't that long ago, if you think about the grand scheme of things, but it was really my first um, first chance to really kind of think about website, e-commerce, um, and e-commerce in, in consumer packages back then was really nothing. Um, but it also was a really a first time to really start playing around with uh, online marketing. Um, and mm -hmm. so it was just when kind of retargeting uh, was taking off and, you know, people were dabbling around it. But I remember, you know, building a marketing plan where it was the first big, big investment in test and learn and so, some of these new emerging technologies. And it was just a great way to uh, break into the industry. Back in the day where no one was really concerned about cookies, not that many discussions were on privacy too, right? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It was the, the wild, wild west. <laughs> actually get people right relative you know relevant content to them um yeah and you know and, and as opposed to mainstream mass marketing actually allow you to target an audience and it was just you know a very unique way of doing it and you know everybody was kind of skeptical in terms of well how many consumers can you really reach will have the roi that you get you know from tv commercials um but it, you know it proved out and obviously brands continue to switch uh, and push a lot more of their marketing budget over there now than they used to. And many brands don't do any TV advertising, obviously, now. Yeah. Yeah. So just to, just to make sure I got it right, you, you were selling Mr. Clean online. Was that it? It, it, was, it was less selling it online, to be fair, back then, because there really wasn't much online sales, okay. um, especially direct. Um, in terms of actual true direct e-com, my first real... Uh, it kind of entry of that was when I got back into consulting and was working mm. with different apparel retailers or different um, other types of retailers, uh, helping them build their omni-channel experiences, helping them think about roles in the channel and how do you design a, a compelling customer experience online mm. that really captures kind of what they were um, doing in their stores. Um, and then think about, how, you know, how do you connect the dots for consumers across the channels? Mm. Nice. Wow. Interesting. And then, I guess uh, to to get closer to where we are today, uh, how could you, you know, try if you can compare a bit how it was then and how it is today? You know, the main differences. What would you say were then? Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, I mean, the big the big difference was how separated uh, channels were uh, operated historically, and then we really stood up as separate divisions, separate units, separate teams, um, and so. Um, in many cases, that created very, you know, um, very kind of clunky consumer experiences because you'd go, you get, you know, go to the website and it would feel in some cases like a different brand or a different, you know, product portfolio or, you know, you'd see different prices. Um, and, and it really was um, 
really, you know, the experiences in those sites were really more set up based on the internal organization versus the consumer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that did create a very chunky and, and clunky experience for, for consumers. Um, and and it, it was really due to kind of the siloed nature of how the organization was run. Um, and, and a lot of that was due to, you know, the, these digital skills, the e-commerce skills were, you know, were things that brands didn't historically have. So they had to hire in new people um, because a lot, of, a lot of their kind of the people running the stores just didn't have those skill sets back then. Um, and so there, it was tougher to have an omni-channel owner, um, which, um, you know, cr created, created more silos than it should have. And that showed off uh, and impacted how the consumer experienced the brand. Yeah, totally. Now, I obviously, there's much more integration, much more thinking holistically, starting with consumer journey and really designing the experience to be seamless, you know, across the channels. I know that's that's something we'll talk about soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then and then today uh, we are seeing these companies like they are born, even if they are direct to consumer or, or consumer brands, some of them are born as tech tech companies with the tech mentality of iteration, MVP, with developers sometimes, you know, do, doing the core for them. Um, and, and, and these brands always, you know, had online operations. But older brands, on the other hand, they started with offline-only operations and some even before the internet, right? So what are the challenges for these brands that are, you know, in this movement from, from the traditional brick-and-mortar, you know, uh, uh, physical store uh, retail and need to go online because, honestly, there's no other option, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's the obvious answers, like we talked about, like building that seamless experience across the channels. There's the obvious answer of, you know, creating an organization, even outside kind of the, the, the channel owner of digital and e-commerce to be really digitally proficient and digitally literate, because you need those skills broader across the whole enterprise, regardless of function. Um But the, the kind of below the surface, the, the thing that's the biggest challenge is really the deeper changes in terms of how the brands approach what's called the go-to-market process in apparel. Um, and that includes the marketing and the product, not just where you where and how you sell the product or how it shows up. And from a product standpoint, one of the big, big things you notice with, with consumers is when they're when they don't actually have to physically travel to the store and they can go to the website, they can come to you much more frequently and you want them to come to you much more frequently. But what that means is you need to create newness and flow um, and think about how you how you drop products and keep them coming back in a different way than when you physically set up your store. Because when you actually get products into your store, there's a huge labor component in terms of resetting the shelves, resetting kind of the look and the feel, the window displays. It's much easier to do it online, plus the traffic um, and expectation of the consumer of coming back and seeing you in different things, um, you know, is, is much higher. The other thing that with the product that's really important that often gets overlooked is thinking about how the product gets talked about. Um, and, you know, if you think about kind of product attribution, it's starting to get a little bit technical. Mm -hmm. um, but but. Product attribution and product description play such an important role in kind of lower funnel marketing in terms of search relevance, in terms of, you know, if a consumer is not typing and looking for your specific brand, how do you show up in their, in, in, on their radar? And so making sure that you really are thinking about what are the primary purchase drivers, 
you know, what are the relevant pieces of information that you need to communicate when the consumers um, kind of are coming in where they can't touch the product, where they can't look at the, you know, the, the information card. All of that really needs to change and that starts changing the whole cycle in terms of even the product development side. And then on the same standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, the big difference is just the magnitude and the speed of the content that you need to develop when you're selling online versus selling in stores. Um, you just need a lot more content. You need it faster. You need it to be relevant. Um, you know, the best brands are reacting to, uh, you know, not even week by week, but day by day, in some case, hour by hour, or even, you know, responding to consumers socially, you know, within minutes. Um and you can create great viral buzz when, um, you know, if somebody, if you can, you know, get a pair of pants to a consumer that reacts uh, on social, you know, within a couple hours or even a day, you can create a huge, you know, media buzz um, by surprising and delighting consumers in new ways. The other, you know, the other thing with marketing, you know, is the type of content, you know, especially given the role that search plays and, you um, you think about the, you know, the, you know, the online ecosystem plays in discovery, in consideration, in conversion. You really need to focus much more on mid funnel and lower funnel marketing. And you can do it in really compelling ways, in ways that you can't do offline, where you know traditional media was more about broad awareness. Um, and and so it does change the type of content. You think about social. You think about YouTube. You think about bloggers, influencers, in a totally different way than. Um, kind of historically that you've thought about it. So net net, the the key is you really need to change everything. It's not just about <laughs> selling online and opening up a store and putting your products on there. It's really fundamentally changing how you approach going to market from how you're designing products and how you're uh, flowing your products into the store and into the ecosystem and how you're thinking about the marketing communications in fundamentally new ways. going from the online world and, and starts having brick and mortar stores. Why is that happening? What, what's, what's the point of an online brand going, going physical? Is there, is there, do you have a, a view on that? What you typically see is digitally native brands reach some sort of kind of growth limitation at some point, because the, what they're usually built on is really understanding a consumer target and they develop a great, often one product they can sell against that consumer target. Um, and they do really well, they grow to a certain spot, and then they see their growth starting to decline or not being able to get to the level they need to to meet investors' expectations or thinking about the next round of investors. And where, um, where online is somewhat limited is the ability to reach new consumers, drive awareness, drive trial, new customer acquisition, and then cross-selling um, your existing consumers with new items that you're going to launch. Um, that may be a little bit further from your core. And so the role that the store can play is being a physical manifestation of your brand allows new consumers to get exposed to it that might not know you otherwise or might be somewhat skeptical from a trial conversion standpoint to actually go in and physically touch or see the product. Um, I mean, I remember when all the online mattress companies were opening up, um, you know, going online um, and many of them opened up stores so people could actually just lay on the bed and and see if they liked it, right? And it was proof that, like, you're going to enjoy something like this and you don't have to get it shipped to you and then you have to deal with it after if you don't like it. Um, so it really is about that awareness, the trial, and then even with your existing consumers, the ability to cross-sell. 
there's a brand in the United States called Bonobos, which um, was one of the first there ones that really kind of direct to consumer brands that really broke out um, and then started opening guide shops, which you can't actually walk out of the store with anything, but they're kind of, you can go in and try on things. And um, I, you know, I haven't seen the business case, whether that model worked or not, but what it did allow their current consumers to do is go in and really see other products. Cause they started really as a pant company and they got into suits, they got into shirts and it just allowed the expansion and, and uh, for them to build a, a deeper connection with their consumers and consumers to really understand more about the brand. Mm-hmm. And in, in, and it's funny that they started with pants, right? Because it's so hard to buy a good pair of pants. <laughs> yeah. And to do it online is, you, is yeah. you know, it's usually the, t- the toughest category for consumers to buy online, actually, because it's the, the toughest bit. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, so we already talked about a consumer-centric approach here for, for a couple of times, right? And, and it's just impossible to record anything in 2021 and not mentioning the pandemic, right? So what does it mean for a brand, a retail brand, to, to be consumer-centric after, you know, or during, it's not, not ended, uh, the pandemic. And, 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 and I think one way, one good way to put it is what are the aspects of that, 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 that these consumers, um, value the most now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, it, for any, any of us that are consumers and, and have had experiences, I think there's nothing more frustrating than you, your ability to like, you buy something online, you go into the store and the store has a hard time letting you return (laughs) that or they send you a coupon online um or to your email but you welcome the store and you can't just give them your email address you have to go dig through all your email and actually pull up that coupon and it really is being really consumer centric is about removing the friction points in the customer journey and really ensuring that the customer journey um, is as frictionless as possible. And um, you're building in kind of surprises and delights along the way so that they build up those points where they have really positive perceptions of you and then they eventually go out and tell their friends and family about you because advocacy is the best way of growing a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is starting with that customer journey um, and understanding kind of where where you're strong, where, where you have weaknesses and and working to um, kind of figure out, you know, part part of it is also your brand equity. So there may be places where based on your brand equity, you really want to be distinguished and be famous for. Department store called Nordstrom's in the United States is famous for its customer service. So they should be over-investing in customer service, both online and offline, because that's their core differentiator. Mm-hmm. You know, with, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, Amazon obviously is about speed of shipment. Um, so if Amazon all of a sudden started saying, you know, it's going to be five days or six days before you get your stuff, consumers start saying, well, that's not worth it. I can get it quicker somewhere else. Um, so it is about, you know, smoothing out the customer journey as best as possible and then figuring out where you want to spike based on your brand equity to overinvest in and then remove friction points in other areas to make sure you're at least meeting consumer expectations mm. i think that you know where consumers are expecting you know, to your point that the, you know the expectations are they, they continue to grow um and you know as as retailers get better at this but it, it is a lot of it is about the basics again the ability to 
find, you know, if you see something online and, and it says it's available in the store and you show up in the store and it's not available, that's going to be super frustrating and a bad consumer experience. So it's, it's, a, it's really delivering on the basics and, and um, is, is number one. If you step back broader, you know, I do think kind of a really strong consumer centric approach and, and is, is really about thinking about what role does each touch point play. Um, and each touch point uh, should be consistent in, in terms of the brand equity, but doesn't mean it has to be the same because consumers will use those touch points differently. Um, but ultimately, you want to serve up the right message and the right product and the right experience at the right time based on what the consumer is doing in their journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, to totally. And and you mentioned the, the word seamless, which is, I guess, the holy grail of of channel management, right, in retail. Um, and, and you, you just touch on, upon something that's like, for me is the, the, the core of this, right. Which is getting the basics, right. Right. And, but my question for you is why does it look so hard to get the basics, right? It feels like it shouldn't be, but it, you know, if you think about, especially big retailers that, you know, may, maybe legacy been around for a while, the first is kind of what infrastructure do they have behind the scenes? Um, and Oftentimes, how they built kind of their e-com engine and how they're building kind of their store um, may be built off of two different systems that may not perfectly collaborate um, or connect, um, and and so there is a lag in data sharing across the systems. Um, you know, while many retailers, especially best class retailers, have now invested and kind of gotten everything on one platform, there still relies on real-time, accurate data. Um, and being able to take that data and turn it not only into insights really quickly, but recommendations. And, um, and this is obviously where AI and ML, um, you know, will come into come into play uh, more and more going forward. But it does rely on a lot of, um, you know, it's still more manual than it should be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other thing is like, it's shocking how how hard it is to. To always have it, you know, especially for massive retailers, you think about like the Walmarts, the Targets, you know, to have really accurate um, real-time information in terms of what's available in store. So if a consumer's online looking, by the time they actually say like click on click on a product and say, is it available in the store near me? Um, unless they can reserve it real time and then there's a picker that can go out onto the floor and pull it off the floor. There's no guarantee that somebody else doesn't grab it before the the, the retail associate goes out and picks it because mm -hmm. uh, there is a time lag. And so that is just the challenge when you're working on with relatively limited inventory. And, you know, it's much easier when it's a product where there's a lot of inventory sitting in a warehouse or sitting in the back of the back of the retailer. But it really comes down to the ability to really get good data turn that data not into just the insights but into real recommendations and real actions and then the time lag between what has to happen um both you know uh, both online but then kind of the physical activity that's associated with that i'm a big believer in physical stores there you know there's been a lot of talk about them um going away or being killed off and you know in reality they still are going to play an important role but that role is changing um and, you know, I often think about stores are often more of an acquisition channel, um, whereas online can be more of a refill channel, um, but they, they should work together. The role that both will play will continue to be important. And, um, 
and and I think they need to reinforce each other um, and, and to your point in a seamless way. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense. I want to ask you about the fashion market, right? So what do you, uh, how do you evaluate talking about this process of digitalization, of bringing, of bringing consumers online and, and meeting them halfway to, how do you evaluate the digital maturity of, of the brands today, this, this landscape of, of fashion market? Yeah, I think there's a broad spectrum, to be honest. Hmm. I think, you know, many of the leading brands were investing even before COVID because um, everybody saw the value of, you know, even old wholesale brands saw the value of owning the customer experience, owning the customer data, owning the customer relationship. Um, you look at brands like Nike that historically was predominantly wholesale, and they've continued over the last couple of years to cut back on the number of wholesalers they sell to. In some cases, it's pretty big wholesalers, so they can, they can drive their own online business. Um, and, and so there's been a huge investment in terms of, uh, you know, online, omni-channel, seamless experience. And then with COVID, the best retailers use it as a chance to push even further ahead and double down on the investments they were making um, and accelerate those in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think you see a wide variety. There's still plenty of people behind where they need to be. Um, it's not something that you can change overnight because it's, again, like we talked about before, it's not just about this head technology. It's not just about having the programmers or the right infrastructure. It is about then fundamentally changing how you go to market from a product creation standpoint, um, from a marketing standpoint, and you know, your, all your business operations. Um, so it is a big, massive transformation that does take time. Um, but it, you know, it's something that anybody that wants to survive needs to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have a couple of benchmarks. I guess my, my main ones are from, from the Brazilian market of brands that are building internal innovation labs, you know, have Grupo Soma doing a brilliant job there, CNA, you know, we, we have a couple of uh, fashion brands hiring developers, right, which is, <laughs> was unheard of five years ago. Who, who does that, right? And uh, I guess my question for you is, do you see these fashion brands um, becoming or will they become more like tech companies? Where 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 is there an overlap between these two, I guess, types of, I don't know, companies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what you're speaking to is is the future. I mean, I think people are investing, you know, smart retailers are investing in tech and digital, big data, uh, um, proficiency and literacy. And, and that is creating an even bigger war for talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, living in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last decade, it's been amazing to watch um, all the tech companies battle for engineers. Um, in the fact, in one of the last big recessions where, you know, there were, you know, lots of unemployment, uh, this is the recession before COVID, um, there were still billboards on San Francisco highways advertising for tech companies hiring engineers um, and at really good salaries. And I think that is just going to increase as every company, not just retailers, but <laughs> any kind of, any kind of business wants to compete in the future you need to have those capabilities um and more and more um you know big data um ai machine learning like it's going to be critical to driving the business because there's so much data and you know retailers like amazon and the best in class you know best in class uh, companies are competing against it and it gives them a leg up mm -hmm. and so you need to do it um at the same time you need to balance that with 
the art part of building a brand. And I've talked about this before, but that emotional connection and mm -hmm. the, the intrinsic value of the logo. Because if you do that and you do it really well, um, consumers will still come to you because they can't get you anywhere else. Um, but you need to be competitive and you need to be relevant in terms of that customer journey that we talked about. And that's where the, you know, the engineers detect the big data capabilities are, are so important. Hmm. And how big of a stretch is for, for fashion companies to, you know, to open this innovation lab or, or tech unity inside of them? Because, and just to, to remember also our conversation, right? We were mentioning that to go online as a, as a, as a you know, short-term, medium-term business goal, you have to change everything already, right? And then I guess in the last five, maybe a little less, maybe, you know, three years, we, we see these companies also hiring developers, starting to have their own, you know, uh, uh, tech units inside. Um, so... <laughs> Again, how big is the stretch, you know, for, for these companies who are lagging behind of the online first brands uh, to become, you know, also tech first and, and to uh, not necessarily tech first, but at least uh, get ahead, you know, with the technology side of, of, of the business? Yeah, it's a good question because I think it's the hiring part is probably the easiest of the things to do. It's about how do you do a culture change? And I'm not always convinced that setting up a separate innovation lab on the side is the best way to do that, because if it doesn't integrate with your business um, and your business leaders, then you might have the capabilities, but they may not be actually integrated into the business and it is an impactful way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need to bring in that talent, but then you need to figure out how to embed them or integrate them successfully with the, the business operators. Um, so that it really does get, you know, the, the changes and the impact that you're trying to drive really, really does, does, does happen. Because too often what happens is you've got certain people with great skills, but they just sit either underutilized or they create great things, but they just never, never get picked up. Um, and, and I've seen that happen to a lot of clients when I was consulting and, and in some cases at some of the companies I've worked at. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, uh, Again, uh, we we are seeing, especially uh, the last couple of years, a boom of of direct to consumer for brand manufacturers. Right, we see marketplaces selling a little of everything everywhere, and the cost of innovation, as as we were just talking, was never this low. So I want to pick your brain on on what do you see for the future of the fashion industry? Like where where is the this, the industry going next? Yeah, if. If I could tell you that, uh, <laughs> I might be retired by now. But no, I think, I think you're right. And I think that if the last year has taught us anything, or last two years at this point with COVID, um, is the pace of change is only going to continue to increase and disruption is here to stay. Like it's, and it's not about a one-time like disruption with like something like COVID, but just the continued pace of innovation, um, just given, given everything that you've talked about and we've talked about today. And so... You do need, even if your business is strong, you need to continue to push um, and figure out how do you continue to strengthen that relationship or how do you get ahead? Um, and I do think it's a balance, right? Because again, it goes back to understanding who you are as a business and what truly are your differentiators because you can't overinvest on every part of the journey or make everything best in class. It's just really hard. So you have to figure out like where are the places that you really want to spike and be known for and famous for and really overinvest and innovate in those to be a leader and then figure out what else is table stakes 
and do sort of the 80-20, make them good enough, but don't spend the last dollar uh, making them absolutely perfect. Use that extra dollar to push further on the places that you really spike. Um, but I do think in terms of, um, you know, I think to your point, the innovation's here to stay. I think there's gonna be big increases, um, again, in terms of how, how consumers interact with brands, social commerce uh, will continue to accelerate as a way to influence consumers and uh, let consumers, you know, purchase, um, whether it's integrated with YouTube or integrated with other, you know, other video or other content in a way that's just more seamless. Um, but, but if anything, anything, we know that uh, it's, it's hard to predict, but it will change and you can't stay, stay uh, satisfied with where you are today, even if you're winning today. Yeah. No, if you stay still, you, you already lost, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I'd like to ask you the question I always end the episode with. Um, so taking from your experience, what advice would you give to make digital transformation a smoother process for companies that are going through it right now? I think, um, the first thing is pick two or three things. Don't try to do too much at one time. Focus and get it across the finish line. I think too many companies try to do everything all at once and it's it's really hard. Um, the second thing is what we talked about before, which is make sure that the business stakeholders are really integrated and involved with the business transformation, even if they're not the experts. They've gotta be bought in, they've gotta understand it and figure out how does it change their business and be on board because you can't push change on them otherwise. Um, and then, um, again, I think it figures, like, goes back to really knowing your brand, the differentiators, and focusing on making those spike. Um, but but all in all, I think it is about focus. It is about um, kind of getting the right stakeholder at the table. And then I do think it's moving with urgency. Um, mm. it, you know, Sometimes transformations, you, you see project plans that take three years. And like like we talked about, by the time you integrate something that three years from now, it's going to be obsolete. And so how do you reduce the speed of innovation and move more agilely? And, you know, if you have to bring in external people, I think one of the key things is creating capacity for your business leaders to really put their might and energy against this, even if it means uh, offloading some of their day-to-day -day responsibilities by bringing in some people to take those over. Dan, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you having you here. Uh, hope to get in touch soon. Well, I appreciate it. Super fun to chat with you guys and uh, always good to talk. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Digital Insider, a podcast by Vitex. Special thanks to our fourth guest, Dan Goldman, and to our host, Bernardo and Gruber. To keep listening to Digital Insider, visit our website, digitalinsider.com. Thank you.